Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pantasocracy. And this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a a lovely welcome. Um, Of course, this is uh, radio, so my listeners will just have to take it on trust that a large part of the enthusiasm of my audience was based on the fact that somehow I have managed to make myself look incredibly gorgeous despite the fact that I'm wearing a huge, ugly medical boot contraption because I managed recently to break my ankle. But I did it in the services of entertainment. Um, anyway, so welcome to Pantasocracy, which is a society in which everyone is equal. And welcome to my salon gathering of interesting people doing interesting things. We like to describe Pantasocracy as a cabaret of conversations. Uh, a conversation for and about contemporary Ireland, or at least that's what we told commissioning editors, and they seem to buy it. Um, and tonight I have indeed got for you a fascinating set of folk uh, sitting around our Pantasocracy table. Tony Bates is a psychologist who believes in living in the moment. Siobhan Parkinson is a writer who turned tragedy into art. Jessamine Fairfield is a nanoscientist who grew up in the home of the atomic bomb. Camille O'Sullivan is a performing artiste who may just possibly give me a run for my money in the glamorousness stakes. And Jack O'Rourke is a school teacher come singer whose coming of age songbook has become a sort of anthem for human life. But before we get to speak to any of them, I get to hold the floor, and um, it is my parlor after all, uh, for what we are calling the Panty Monologue. When I was in primary school, I was in the Ballinrobe School Marching Band, and I was really good. My glockenspiel and I were as one, and only the coldest of hearts could remain unmoved by my lyrical flourishes and precision marching on a nation once again. Sister Frances wasn't supposed to have any favourites in her band, but everyone knew I was her favourite. Our nemesis was the Claire Morris Marching Band, 15 miles and light years away across the bog, their band was older and bigger than ours, and although we would never have admitted it at the time, their uniforms were nicer and fancier than ours too. They also had a train station and a swimming pool, and they thought they were better than us. But everyone knew you could never get parking in Clare Morris, so they could feck off with their ideas above their train station. <clears throat> Claire Morris was the bog standard by which Ballinrobe judged itself. So in a spirit of competition that would have touched the cold heart of the brand new British Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher, beating the fancy costumed Claire Morris band was our carrot, while Sister Frances's stern displeasure was our stick. Not mine, of course. I was her favourite. Um, so when we qualified for the All-Ireland Schools Marching Band Finals in Killarney, it wasn't the thought of lifting the trophy after a spectacular performance of Aaron Levine that spurred us on through hours of practice, but rather the thought of the Claire Morris Band's crumpled faces as they stood, hopefully in the rain, and watched us lift it. 
before they got the train home. I don't remember now which saint it was that Sister Frances had decided was concerned with the outcome of school's marching band competitions rather than the sick and destitute, but whoever it was, we obviously prayed hard enough and often enough because when we were clambering back onto our coach to return home from Killarney, Sister Frances proudly clutching the All-Ireland School's marching band winner's trophy, everything was perfect with the world, and train stations and swimming pools and fancy uniforms seemed but trivial things. And when the coach stopped on the side of the road for a pee break, not long into the long journey back to Mayo, everything was still perfect with the world, and when Sister Frances took me and my two sisters aside and walked us a little way, you know, away from the rest of the victorious peeing band, everything was still perfect with the world. And then she told us that Granny had died. You know, Granny Hoban was a formidable woman who had raised five kids on a Guinness secretary's wage. She used to come, you know, just to visit us on the train, or we would go to Dublin to visit her. But for the last while, she had been living in our back bedroom, which hummed constantly with the sound of her ventilator. Sister Frances said she was in heaven now, and I'd say God was already regretting letting cancer get her because she could be quite stern when she wasn't pleased, and, you know, and I'd say she was already giving him a proper bollocking. <laughs> now, I knew what death was. After all, we'd already buried a whole cemetery worth of various pets in the garden, dogs and cats and budgies and hedgehogs and rabbits and sheep. But I had never known a person who had died before, and I knew that this was going to be a much bigger deal. You know, we wouldn't be burying Granny Hoban at the bottom of the garden. And while the bus bumped its way back to Ballon Robe and my sisters cried, I cried too. Now, I cried because I wouldn't see Granny Hoban again, but I cried too because I wasn't really sure what not seeing Granny Hoban again would be like. But mostly I cried because... I was sure that Mammy would be crying, and Mammy crying was a rare and awful thing, and I dreaded arriving home. Now, Sister Frances has said that there'd be a lot of people in the house when we got there, and I imagined my Mammy you know, coming to the door to meet us crying and sobbing, terrifying grown-up tears, and inside in the sitting room there'd be all lots of grown-ups, you know, some of whom I would know and some of whom I wouldn't, you know, all sitting around quietly crying and looking sad at me with big, significant grown-up looks because I was a granny orphan now. And when we got home, Mammy did come to meet us, and we were still crying, but Mammy wasn't crying. She was you know, smiling and hugging us and telling us that Granny Hoban would be very proud about the trophy. And inside in the sitting room, there were lots of grown-ups, like Sister Frances had said, but they weren't crying either. They were drinking and chatting and laughing and eating sandwiches and biscuits and telling jokes and remembering that time that Granny Hoban gave some fella a proper bollocking. It turned out that it's great crack when somebody dies. <clears throat> you know, there was no biscuits and sherry when Sonny the Budgie had died. And I secretly hoped that someone else would die soon because the biscuits were fancy. But like everyone, as I got older, I became more familiar with death. There was Granny O'Neill, whose hand I touched as she lay in the coffin on her bed and immediately felt better because that cool plastic-feeling hand was definitely not Granny O'Neill's hand anymore. She was somewhere else, presumably better. And then there were neighbours and friends' parents and eventually friends. A lot of friends, actually, when AIDS was decimating my community. And I became familiar with death in other countries, too, and other cultures, and I learned that, actually, we do death really well in Ireland, you know, much better than in other places. They worry about what to say and what to do, but we don't. 
everyone knows the rituals. Neighbors gather, meals are made and delivered, you know, drinks are raised, stories remembered, a life anecdoted. Lifts are organized, cars shared, removals to St. Mary's, hands shaken, and we are sorry for your troubles. The rituals are familiar and comforting. Everybody knows their role. They are easy and we are eased through loss. And losing things is the human condition. As we grow older, we lose our hair, our eyesight, our strength, our memory, our youth, our friends and our loved ones. And if growing older is a process of losing things, then growing wiser is perhaps learning how to cope with their loss. I, I do honestly think that you know, growing older really is about learning to lose things because life is sort of a procession of losing things. Siobhan, what's your earliest memory of loss in a way? I suppose the death of my grandparent would have been my first experience of death and that I suppose is the most serious form of loss because it's yeah. irretrievable. The thing about losing a grandparent, even though it's sad... It is in the order of things. It's to be expected. Grandparents are elderly. You know, we know that they're approaching death. And even if we're quite young, we know that. So even though it might be sad and you might be upset about it, you know that this is normal and that everybody experiences this. And that's fine. It's really when a younger person dies that death then becomes a much more problematic thing and that's a much more wrenching kind of a loss I think. Even though, I mean, when your own parents die, of course, then that's also very difficult and that's a big wrench too, but I do think that maybe losing a sibling or losing a child um, or losing a friend who's very close, I think that's the most severe form of loss. Mm. Jessamine, you grew up in the States. I said you grew up in the home of the atomic bomb. Yes, that's Um, right. Yes, in New Mexico. Um, America does death differently, I think. Yeah, I mean, actually, even just what you were mentioning about the idea here that you go to everyone's funeral, you know, even if you don't know them very well. And I would also have that feeling of sometimes like, do I know them well enough that I can go? But I think it's lovely because you are sort of celebrating the person and marking the death and, and dealing with it. And there's not to me, as much of a sense here of like, oh, well, you know, don't show too much that you're affected by by someone's death, because it is a hugely affecting thing. And there should be a public space to process that. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think people here, you know, they, they joke about the local politician who turns up at every funeral. But yeah. that's just an Irish thing. You 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 go to funerals, you know, and because it's not necessarily about how you maybe knew the person who died, but how you know the people who have survived that person, yeah. you know. Yeah. A friend of mine once, you know, he felt embarrassed going up to do the shaking of the hand at the removal and the sorry for your troubles thing. And he's like, I never know what to say. And I said, well, say sorry for your troubles. Yeah. Because from the outside, you kind of think well, that's stupid. But actually, it's, it's actually very comforting because it's, people are just saying quietly, I'm aware of your loss. Yeah. Camille, would you, uh, do you remember the first time you were keenly aware of losing something? I just remember a moment when... I don't know if I was nine and somebody says, are you depressed? And I was like, what is that word? And I'd never heard it before. And I always think from that moment on, if somebody hadn't said it, I might never have felt down or (laughs) I would have always been happily going along my way. (laughs) But it was just a moment in time when somebody explained something to me that seemed very grown up. And it was a moment of kind of becoming a teenager or something. Mm. So I think maybe where I never worried about something before, now I was starting to worry about something. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what that was the loss of, not being Your afraid. Innocence. innocence and not being afraid of yeah. things. And uh, maybe knowledge was making me a bit nervous. The bigger world. Uh, where, where, you know, I grew up in a village in Cork and uh, I mean, we travelled and stuff, 
but just I think I, I was quite contained in the family mm. and and suddenly uh, do you have a moment um Jack of loss yeah I think I can kind of empathize with what Camille was saying you know growing up in a small town in Cork as well and moving to a much bigger school and that feeling of locality and being protected and suddenly you're out in the big bad world and you have to be of Cork yeah <laughs> Cork is everything <laughs> um, but um, as well as that I think regarding the natural order of things there is a kind of an expectancy that you're going to be unfortunately bearing an older family member yeah. but, but I'm a teacher and when you have to bury a student or there's no word in any language you know you're an orphan if you lose a parent but um there's no word for that so it's it's processing that is very difficult mm. now tony you're of course a clinical psychologist and you know loss and grieving and all things is a huge part of what you do but your own introduction to loss i remember being terrified when i was six seven eight nine my greatest fear was that my parents would die And every night I knelt down and prayed they wouldn't die. But the reason was I was terrified of seeing a dead body because somebody had put the fear of God into me about the way people looked when they died. So it wasn't so much affection. Um, But it it was that too. I I think probably my my grandfather dying, I was nine, and it was the first real experience Mm. of actual death. And I associated with cornflakes and the cream at the top of the bottle of milk which was a complete treat and somehow I decided that I deserved a treat as my parents left the house and went to Cork the family were from Cork and left me in the house alone and I did what came most instinctively I had fresh cornflakes and the cream. And I suppose that set up happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was like I associate that with bourbons. Yeah, okay. You know, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you don't get bourbons on a regular day. Um, when I was sort of thinking about today, there's that Leonard Cohen quote about um, there's a crack in everything that lets the light in. You know, sort of about how you cope or whatever. And it's, and it's interesting that, Tony, you mentioned seeing a dead body. Because for me, actually, when my second granny died, I think I mentioned it briefly there, my father encouraged me to touch her. I'm so glad he did because it totally changed my fear about dead bodies and, and, and in a way about death because it was absolutely clear that's not Granny O'Neill. Granny O'Neill doesn't feel like that, you know. And it totally took away any trepidation I had about dead bodies. And I think it's a sad thing that waking is becoming less and less common. And I also, I wonder, you know, my father's a vet, so, you know, I saw the insides of animals, you know, all the time. And, you know, so I was very aware of the cycle and just things are messy and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that was good for me. Mm. But, Tony, that's, in a way, your job is about helping people let the light in. Would you agree with that? Well, I think my job has been almost about seeing the light, you know, because I think when people are broken, there is an extraordinary moment where you see what is most beautiful in them. And I'm not romanticizing suffering and depression and anxiety, but over the course of my life, I've been privileged to have very honest conversations with people that feel very real and are very moving. And they're just the truth of people's lives. And as they speak their truth, there's also this pain and the other side becomes more evident, the comedy and, and the, the beauty and the mystery of people's lives. And I think I've been able to experience when that sort of shell of defensiveness is cracked a bit, that actually you do see something. And I also think when we're broken, in a funny way, it actually brings out of other people an enormous kindness. 
uh, when I look back at my life, I think of things that went badly wrong at different times. And it was when I experienced firsthand the incredible kindness of strangers. I'd never have known there was such kindness. So there's something happens when the cracks appear, I think, for all of us, everybody who's involved. And I was just lucky to pick a job where that there was a lot of cracks, you know. Yeah, yeah. Those were cracked people and that was just the staff, you know. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I suppose we keep so much of ourselves hidden all the time and this is something you can't hide. If something really major has happened, you've had some really major loss, you can't pretend it hasn't happened. So you have to admit to something, you have to admit to your own weakness. And that's very transformative. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, in some ways, I think Camille... I mean, you're very famous for torch songs, and essentially they are about the cracks. In a way, I sometimes think artists couldn't exist without pain, in, in a way. I don't want to sound no, too, no, no, you know, it's, no, it's true. I suppose the I'm thing sure is... Britney Spears could exist without it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> She's gone through probably plenty she has of the gone poor through thing. A lot oh, my God. Thing, yes. Well, I suppose the thing is, anything in theatre or music or singing, good theatre that gives you empathy or provokes you to think about life in a different way, and the kind of singers that I like, like Nick Cave or Tom Waits or Leonard Cohen... Those are people that really try and delve into matters of the heart in a very kind of honest, authentic way. And usually what binds people is that it's a shared emotion of I feel a bit messed up inside and or I've gone through heartache. And those are the greatest kind of moments of love song is the things of not working out. And I think empathy is all part of that, Mm. too, because it's interesting when you sing those kind of songs, you never telling an audience how to feel it's just you're going through it yourself and you're Mm. feeling that emotion and I suppose music is wonderful in that way because everybody has their own attachment to music I mean last night I went to see the documentary of I mean I adore Nick Cave's music and I went to see his um, documentary about his new album and of course the sad loss of his son Mm. comes up in it but everybody was in tears watching that but it was him working through it through his music mm-hmm. and music can kind of just bring you to this other place. Well, Tony has a great quote and, you know, if you can find the strength to survive the sort of the darkest times that actually if you come out the other side, it makes you more alive as a person. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm totally mangling what he said, but he said it much more <laughs> poetically and beautifully. But, but that, that's <laughs> the general gist. Um, and, and Camille, you, of course, had a terrible car accident and I, I felt that in a way it changed your path. life path. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, I would have been a scaredy cat probably before I was an architect and well on the way to doing that career. And I should have known, like when I was out on a building site with little flowers in my hair and stuff, the guys were like, you're not supposed to be out here. I was thinking, you know, something about you, that's a performer girl. But I'd always wanted to sing or whatever I wasn't sure about being in front of an audience or whatever but it was the car accident which was quite serious at the time and took a year to kind of um, to walk again use my hands and everything it was a a moment uh, I suppose the thing is when the awakening was this is one life and Mm. you better get on with it and whether you're scared of it or not so that did make things very clear and sometimes when I'm going through moments of anxiety or I'm nervous again I wish I could remember how clear it was how simple it was it was very pure kind of feeling of like I just want to tell people who I love I love them and if I didn't like them I wish I could tell them and now I'm going to tell them and I did that it was a great relief and then you know I still have anxieties about being a performer but it was like that was the path and it was just it became very clear and I, I say it sometimes to my friends like um especially when the crisis in architecture and the economy in Ireland in general happened and they're like, what are we going to do? I says, well, this is a good chance to just reverse your life and change it and do something you never thought. 
So I suppose the thing is, sometimes things happen to you in your life and you either ignore them and continue on or you go, this is here to make yeah. something else happen or to open yourself yeah. up to it and be present. Because, Siobhan, you lost a, a child and yeah. I feel that in a way that also changed the course of your life. Completely, yeah. I had a stillborn son and it completely changed my life. I knew this baby wasn't going to survive and so I had some time to adjust to it. And my big problem was terrible to know that my child was going to die, but it was also terrible to try and explain this to his brother who was only five. My first instinct was to write it down and then I read the story to him and then that's how he began to understand what was happening. And that was really the beginning of my career as a writer. So it was almost as if this child came into the world just so briefly and but he brought this gift mm. and it completely changed my life. So then I became a writer and that's a long time ago now. Um, that's 25 years ago more. Um, but it also changed my husband's life. He did the same. He changed as well. He, he was a teacher. And shortly after this event, he became an artist. And mm. so he's now a turner. And so his life was completely transformed as well. So it changed our lives outwardly, you know, in a very obvious kind of way that we both have different careers now but of course that outward change comes from an inner recognition that there are things in life that you should be doing and something tragic like that can give you the opportunity to recognize that and also gives you permission to do the thing you know there are so many expectations on people to succeed and to do well and to get the mortgage and the house and the pension and the job and the car and it's as if you're kind of caught in this maelstrom of having to achieve and succeed and then something terrible happens And the light then is not only is this transformative emotionally for you, but you also have kind of public permission to make your life different. Mm -hmm. And everybody says, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, here's, here's somebody now who's transformed their life and actually that's true it does give you this kind of space and time and then you can say okay I'm going to change my life and I did and we both did and I'm very grateful to that little boy yeah because it's, it's, it's funny because when I saw a quote from you saying something similar it struck me that Alwyn Flory was on this show before and she lost some children and she basically said exactly the same thing as you mm-hmm. And I just thought that, you know, you two need to be best friends or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the other, actually, I do slightly worry sometimes when amazing people like you say things like that. Because I think it then sometimes people can feel that they must be transformed by, by bad experiences in their lives. Oh, and sometimes yeah. I think life just carries on. And, and tragedy can be so mundane sometimes. I want it to be all melodramatic, like mm. in a movie. And then when it happens, it's so mundane. That's what annoys me about it. Like... I want my tragedies to be big and glamorous. But then, you know, the next day, I still have to take yeah. the bins out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's also the thing if you get, you know, you go through all the grieving thing and you do the funeral and you shake the hands and you do everything and you're feeling, oh, I'm, I'm fine now, I'm doing well, this is grand. And then you wake up and they're still dead. The person is still dead. And you didn't really expect that. You kind of thought, I've gone through all this thing now, I can get back to normality. And then you realise, no, actually, they're still dead. And, you know, that's the mundane fact that you have to cope with. All the rituals are very helpful at the time, but you still have to go forward and do something with the rest of your life. There's also something about, you know, when something like that happens to you, it puts you on the outside for a moment. Yeah. It separates you from everybody else who's normalising. And sometimes I think that gives you a, a sort of, clarity or a better understanding yeah. I mean I, I always think it's bad to be too comfortable in the world mm. I always think if I hadn't been born gay I, I, I'd probably be a dick you know well well because I, you know you know 
I, I, you know, I'm passable looking. I'm book smart. I had, you know, a middle class family. I went to a nice school. There's a good chance that if I hadn't been gay, I would have been so comfortable in the world that now I'd be driving around in a big horrible car and just being a dick to people, you know, <laughs> and that I think I'd have less empathy or something. So it's, it's good to be slightly on the outside you know it humanizes you or something that's one way jack you're another big queer (laughs) (laughs) and and your song silence um which you're going to play for us in a a little bit well in it's certainly here during the equality referendum campaign you know um was used a lot and became a sort of anthem if i can put it that way yeah unlikely because it it wasn't really madonna anthem or you know (laughs) it was just a piano ballad but um I suppose it was just a story of me as a child, but I think a lot of people could empathise with it. But what you were saying there, I think if you deal with any adversity, it should make you more empathetic. Yeah. If you choose to, rather than wallow in self-pity and just look outward more at people who are suffering and yeah. and try to see things from their perspective. Uh, do you want to tell us a little, I mean, we briefly spoke about the song. Do you want to tell us a little yeah, about um, it? Yeah, it, this is a song I wrote called Silence and it's going to be on my debut album just going to put out that plug there um, yes yes Jack's <laughs> debut album is technically out it's the 23rd September, of September but you're yeah. having the official launch in October on October in, in uh, the Everyman in Cork on the 15th and a uh, national tour to follow oh. um, so this is called Silence and it has won the international songwriting competition recently so there you go yes Kitchen toys from Santa Claus No need for John Deere's He liked bright colors and glamour On his bedroom wall She's longs and chandeliers Could park around a schlitter But he ran away from the ball The oldest in the litter But felt gangly when standing up tall He'd been bagged Plastic tea set strengthened up that wrist When they laughed at school Blue-tacked Robbie Fowler's hat-trick Made a boxing fist Staying safe by playing the fool Smoothed out goose pimples when Callas sang Vizi Darte Bragged about his girlfriends When the lads called over to play Walk like a man Keep your shoulders broad Ease upon your mincing You'll fit in with the crowd Comes of silent songbirds With longing in their hearts to take a breath Break out in song Without sounding wrong 
Inside the man plays parts For all except himself Without an acting guide His real persona's in a coma Love's left on the shelf Can't show his other side Small talk with handsome strangers He looks down as they see through his guise A brush without a painter On a canvas blank With hopeless denial Walk like a man Keep your shoulders broad Ease upon your mincing You'll fit in with the crowd What becomes of silent songbirds Will longing in their hearts To take a breath Toys from Santa Claus I think um, everybody in the room is now officially in love with Jack O'Rourke. Um, and yeah. I, uh, if I can just say that, um, I just want to thank Jack. And you know, for me, that just is an experience of where music and art just can puncture a hole in that shell we craft around ourselves and call sanity. And it is beautiful. It's really powerful. I hadn't heard it before at all. And I will say mental health, for me, it's not about feeling good. It's about facing what's real and what's difficult and then feeling great, you know, because we feel so much more liberated and connected and real when we do face these difficulties. And that came to me just listening. One of the things I've really enjoyed about uh, doing this show is it's been an opportunity and we've tried a lot to bring artists and academics together because... well, it turns out they have a lot more in common than I thought. And, uh, and education has been one of the big sort of mind things. And you, in a way, you are the poster boy for that, because one of the things I like about you, there's many things I like about you, you're a big handsome man from Cork, but um, <laughs> one of the things I like about you is that, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're a teacher and you're also a successful singer, but you're not one of those people who is only teaching to get you to musical success. Teaching is something you're passionate and driven by, and given the opportunity, you'll keep teaching. But I think as as an artist and as a performer, you know, and as an author, it's so self-absorbed. Jesus, you're you're, you're in your head all the fucking time, you know? Mm. (laughs) And thinking about 
promoting yourself and I think sometimes to go into a classroom and to be responsible for people and to care about them you know it just gives you a different frame of mind and it puts yeah. things into a greater perspective that when you when you are out there performing and promoting your own work you realize it's not the be all and end all yeah um Jasmine is a nanoscientist actually just really cool. g- g- give give us the 30 <laughs> second explanation of well, basically, I work with nanomaterials that are incredibly tiny, and I'm trying to make electronics that work more like the human brain from them. That's my research. And then I also run this research and comedy variety night called Bright Club. Yes. Um, and of course, one of the other things that you're interested in, and so many, I, I would say younger scientists are into, is trying to educate basically people about your work and explain your work. It's become like a real thing with the younger scientists. Because I think older scientists didn't care if other people understood. <laughs> you know, they were almost proud of well, it. Yeah, there's being... this very strong movement. And I think especially in Ireland of like science communicators who are professional, like scientists or engineers, mathematicians, and even in the other fields as well, like arts and humanities and social sciences, trying to get out there to the public and to talk to people about what they're doing and to throw away jargon and to, you know, to really engage with people. Because also you learn a lot about what you're doing by doing that. Someone will ask a question based on like the 30 second description of your research and you go, oh my God, I never thought of that. Oh, <laughs> and then you go back to the lab for a while. And cry. Um, well, <laughs> and then you create. Yes. Uh, Jessamine, one of the things um, about you that's interesting is that maybe it was almost inevitable that you were going to be a scientist. You're absolutely steeped in science as you grew up with scientists, parents and scientists, neighbors and scientists. Tell us a little bit about that. That's exactly right. I mean, so Los Alamos as a town where I grew up did not exist before World War II. Uh, it was founded to be the sort of secret home of the atomic bomb project during the war. And so scientists from across the country were shipped in in secret uh, to live there all together to work on the bomb. And after the war, they sort of revealed that the town was there. But like it was chosen to be in the middle of nowhere. And so now it's still a national lab um, that does a lot of different types of science and engineering. But like you wouldn't really go there unless you were a scientist and you were working at the lab because there's nothing around. Like when I was in high school, the only movie theater in town closed and we had to drive like an hour to get to a different movie theater. And I was like, oh, all right. (laughs) And so, yeah, for me growing up, like most of the adults that I knew were like, you know, a biochemist or mathematician or engineers of various stripes. Most of the people that I knew who went off to college were like, oh, I'm going to study science or engineering. Of course, those are the things that you study. And then a lot of them had to make the call home of like, oh, I've discovered English literature. (laughs) I've discovered modern dance. I've discovered boys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But so like my parents are a biochemist and a mathematician. And I just was definitely at least somewhat expected of me that I would go into some sort Mm. of similar field. And I ended up in physics, uh, which I love, but then also doing on the side things like creative writing and music. And it's been great, especially since I've moved to Ireland, finding ways to merge those things. Um, and to blend science with art and science with music and ideas and all these things. Tony, one of the other things that you say is it only takes one good adult, and much of your work is about young people and helping them to cope with depression or... or one good adult, I think, yeah, what we found in Headstrong was that there were, you know, we did this research to understand young people and their experience, and whilst we knew that you know, one and four and all that stuff was were not feeling so good. That wasn't so interesting. And we asked the question, what are the protective factors in young people's lives or in all our lives? And what are the really risk factors, given all the millions of things that go wrong and, and happen? I should just say, you started Headstrong, which is an organisation. Yeah, 
yeah. which is uh, involved with young people and their mental health. I, I worked for years with the head of psychology in James's, and I suppose the question I, I heard more often was that if only, you know, if only I'd, I'd, I'd had someone at 14 or 15. And, you know, when you've heard that for 25 years, you kind of feel, well, maybe that's pointing to something. And there seemed to be a, an enormous gap around young people. And, and yet that's where it was all happening. Things were going wrong, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I started out on that. And I, I, I suppose I had to learn about young people and their experience. And I, uh, you, you, so you listen and then research is a kind of listening. And the most powerful predictor of recovery and resilience was the availability in a young person's life of at least one good adult who knew them personally and who believed in them and who was available to them. And of course, this is entirely familiar. You know, none of us have got here without such a person. Every story, uh, you've got Bagheera in Jungle Book, you've got Gandalf, you've got Dumbledore, you've got all these characters that are always critically important in the lives of slightly traumatised young people. But in all our lives, I, I was talking to young people yesterday, I said the most important thing you can do for your mental health is actually to know who that person is. Not that you have a conversation about depression and anxiety, but you... You actually know that person who seems to get you. And it can be your mother, father, it can be a grandparent, a teacher, older sibling. But, you know, just, I said, just take a moment in the next month and just tell them, I like being around you or I like talking to you. And then to adults, I say, look, you don't even know how important the role you're playing, not just as parents, but with nieces and nephews. And you actually look at them with respect and you just act in your own way very normally but that could be so life-giving for that young person because nobody else is doing that a look can transform somebody's day and mm. even their life and you're very interested in bringing this you know, into schools and mindfulness i'm stepping down after 10 years a uh, ceo and i'm, and I'm, I'm going to work in schools completely because I'm, I'm really uh, struck by the fact that we still have a very strange idea of mental health in schools and how it works. And I'd love to see, can we transform the culture of schools to make it a much more supportive and healthy place for young people to be? And it's an idea whose time has come, yeah. the school mental health. Jack, in a sort of a modern Irish school, is that something they're more aware of than they would have been in the past, the mental health of their students and that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I can only speak from my own school, but... Uh, our duty of care to our students is very important to us as teachers. And if it's not, you're in the wrong job. You see them every day and you notice little changes. And I think it's just a more diverse society. And I think there's more acceptance and uh, respect for difference. Hmm. And because Siobhan, you, of course, were the first children's laureate. I was, 2010 to 2012. And I do a lot of work in schools because most of my writing is for children. Hmm. And I think, yeah, this one good adult, I mean, very often it is a teacher, isn't it? And a lot of people look back on a teacher who helped them through a, a tricky... Even the teacher doesn't even know always that they're, that they're doing it. Mm. But I think the whole education system is kind of caught up in this nexus of competition. Competitiveness yeah. is everywhere in schools. And it's not just the parents. It's also the children being themselves very competitive. A lot of the work that I do in schools is to do with creative writing and... I always now work collaboratively, get the children to work collaboratively on a story. And I find there's very often resistance because they're used to, um, oh, I'm the best or I'm the best or um, this is what I'm good at and I'm going to do this and I'm going to be the illustrator and I'm going to be the writer and I'm going to write it all down because my handwriting is the nicest. And there's always something 
very competitive in children and it manifests itself in school. And I think that's something we also have to guard against and try and break that, the kind of the hold that competitiveness has on children. And of course, the education system, because it's all about points and getting into whatever you want to do when you, when you leave school, it's kind of ingrained in the education system. And I really don't know how that can be reformed. I think or, it's intergenerational, you know, yeah. if, to break that down. Yeah. You know? it's a huge, <laughs> Sometimes you it's go a huge in and you task. say, you know, you say to your students, the leaving cert or the junior cert isn't, isn't the be isn't all and end all. And they're, they're looking at you it's, aghast, you yeah. know. It's desperately <laughs> important at the time, but. Yeah. I have never, ever once been asked what results I got in my leaving cert or the intercert. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, and I think about you, Siobhan, though, that actually people sitting here who, who don't know you, you know, you're a writer, you're yeah. going along, you're writing and reading books is, you know, the most important, well, one of the most important things in your life. It's yeah. your joy your passion yeah. and then you lose most of your sight yeah to the point where actually you can't just pick up a book and, re- and no, read it no that, that was actually, that's that was, a loss that's a huge loss wow. yeah it's a huge loss and it happened to me quite young I was in my 40s when this happened and um Luckily, there is technology to help and I can read in various ways, but I can't pick up a book. I can't. And I hate going into bookshops. I used to love bookshops. And now I hate going into bookshops because sometimes I can't even read the titles. And I used to say to people when it first happened, I saw the world through the medium of print. And now Mm. I don't anymore. And the whole everything's changed. So that was, yeah, it was hugely difficult. But technology really, really does help. There's some great stuff out there. So you get used to it as well. You get by. Well, you know, just in case there was any doubt in your mind, I am fecking gorgeous. (laughs) 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 And Jessamine, is there any chance that nanotechnology might come to Siobhan's aid? There is a lot of work actually being done on basically like implants to improve uh, vision uh, when it's been impaired in some way, like artificial retinas, um, which used to be something I was really interested in, actually. And then I've moved out of the field a little bit. But the real problem is how to interface with like the eye as a system and the brain. Um, because it's one thing to like make a, a chip that can record a beautiful image, like we all have those in our phones yeah. now. But then figuring out how to like plug that into the brain directly so that it gets there um, and you process it as that, and it doesn't just like give you a headache or something mm. is very difficult. But there's a ton of researchers working on it, and you know hopefully we'll see something in that area very soon. One of the things we've been talking a lot about is sort of young people and all that. And of course, Camille, you became a, a mother uh, yep. two years ago, I uh, think. Three, yeah. Three years ago, and. Um, one of the things that sort of interests me always is when female performers, especially ones, you know, who are seen as glamorous and all of that, and then, you know, they become a mother. And I always think that there's some sort of reticence to bring that into their work because of this view that motherhood can't be glamorous and sexy and, mm-hmm. and that somehow it, it will take away from their stage persona or something. Is is that something that you... I didn't think about it. No, I didn't think about it, but I don't include her in my Twitter and Facebook and there's not a trace of her there. So I have made a kind of decision that's a precious part of my life that is like, you know, I suppose the thing is, look, I've got no makeup on today. Um, You know, I had a hat that was hiding everything. I always know that when I do my stage thing, that's one thing. And when I do my private life, that's another. So she happens to be part of that. And I go on in my crazy eccentric way as the the previous Camille is still going on. That's why (laughs) I see it. I I haven't made a a distinction in my head myself. Do you know what I mean? And that's a good thing in a way. I haven't changed what I think about myself. And maybe I work a little bit harder because I'm afraid maybe I did change. I don't 
like seeing posters of myself and, you know, I'm driven mad by having to do the self-promotion thing because, you know, I'm desperate to make sure that I don't lose money in this blooming game. So I have to keep that going to keep audiences coming. But I do find that constantly having to think about yourself drives me a little mad. And the Mm. best part of it is caring for somebody else who is so amazing and who looks at things in such a way that I'm envious. I go... You know, sometimes, like, say, we met each other when I was in Edinburgh and I was losing my mind during that yes. month. And then I I had written her name on my hand. So I just went, you know, can't wait to go back and play Lego with her. Like, yeah. you know, so there is great aspects. But, but it is interesting to me because, of course, people never think that way about male performers who have children. You know, it doesn't transform how people see them at all. Now, I do agree with you that it is a thing that a woman is seen differently yeah. to a man. That is for sure. You know, people always think oh, sexy chanteuse singer or whatever, and you have to stay in that thing. And does that wreck everybody's heads when you've changed what that was? Um, that's other people's views, not yes, my own, yes, right? Because exactly, yeah. I've always won. I'd want to play in dungarees. That would be my dream come true, not to put any makeup on. But um, I do think it's interesting, you know, the way that uh, Facebook and Twitter go now, that people are using their kids to sometimes sell mm. their themselves. And I don't. Particularly, I'm not yeah. a fan of that, yeah. you know. I even keep, you know, Penny in the background. Um, well, no, but... So, <laughs> but, but, but... But then the, the other thing about it is, of course, that I, I'm very consciously aware of, you know, so if I am dressed in my full regalia, kids see me as a clown, and I'm totally fine with that. So I have no problem interacting with the kids, and their parents have no problem with me interacting because, yeah. look, it's the big shiny clown. But if I am in my Rory day wear... And there's a kid that I don't know or, or whatever. I now have this reticence about interacting with them mm-hmm. because of this whole thing yeah. now around, you know, strange yeah. men and children and all of that. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that is personally sad because I'm second guessing how it will look if I say hello to a child I don't know on the Lewis or something. Yeah. And it really bothers me. And, and but to Tony, you're a grandfather now and male presences are important in the same way the female presences are. No, I was in arrivals in the airport this morning and there was a woman beside me with two children, a little girl and a little boy. You know, they were fun and I wanted to interact with them a little bit, but I, I noticed I had that same hesitancy. I'm this old guy standing in the corner, hello, you know. Yeah. And I, it's terrible, you know, and I, and so what I did was I very strategically talked to the mum and then a while, Grooming, eventually, yeah. I, well, yeah. I know, yeah, yeah. so you yeah. can't, yeah. can't win, you know. Um. <laughs> Some woman is listening saying, that sounds like the creepy old guy in the airport this morning. <laughs> but it's, it's so easy to flip into that kind of paranoia and that kind of anxiety mm-hmm. and talk about being one good adult. I mean, I... I I know how important I am in the, the, the lives of my three grandchildren. I mean, they, they couldn't articulate it. They're like five months. and But, like, there's such a gift in mm. being a grandparent. Yeah, and you can't touch a child. I mean, you're oh, sitting, sitting, sitting beside oh, a child in a cheapers, classroom yeah. and you want to kind of pat them on the shoulder or pat them on the hand because, you know, or even just get their attention. But sometimes it might just be, oh, well done. And you, and you can't do that anymore. And that's just terrible it's terrible for the adult but it's also terrible for the child yeah that's such a loss yeah yeah, it is a loss you know sometimes I look at the kids and they see a hugging and going why can't I just go up to somebody and hug you know why can't I show that affection you know where's the moment that we step back Mm. because that thing of kindness or being you know that's the great Irish thing that we do have but it's just sometimes you look at people and you think I wonder what they were like as a child 
Mm. Do you know what I mean? But I treat them differently because it's an adult now and yeah. they, there's Jack, a bit of distance. People like you, male teachers, are becoming less and less common. Is that... Yeah, the most natural thing to me in the world if one of your students is suffering would be to give them a hug or but you can't overstep that mark. And it's something I actually in my teaching career I've had to think about, you know, because if you're a caring person, it seems like the most natural thing. But you also don't know where they're coming from, you know, in terms of their boundaries and how they, how they look at you. So it's a pity, you know, and, and people talk about child protection, but, you know, I often think it should be called teacher or adult protection as well you know because, and it's a shame just because of a, a a minority of sick individuals you know that 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 we all have to be careful now of how we seem well it's because it's also one of those things where i think there was you know a lot of great strides in looking at gender roles differently and women not being tied to the children and the kitchen sink and in some ways it's pushed that back because it's reinforced this idea that children are women's world because in some way now men are stepping back because they they, they feel uncomfortable. It's a sort of a, a rotten thing in so many ways. I do think it's important, though, to recognize that children, like you were saying, that children have boundaries in the same way that adults have boundaries. And, yeah. that you know, it's hard to know what those are unless you're yeah. involved in that child's life all the time. Yeah. And so, you know... And taking your child and saying, oh, you have to give granny a kiss on the cheek. It's like, well, maybe they don't want to. Like, yeah. maybe a child doesn't want to be hugged sometimes, and that can be okay, too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, just being mindful of that. Kiss Granny, go on. <laughs> go on, do it. <laughs> For a fiver. Especially when Granny's dead, you know. <laughs> you'll learn something. Kiss dead Granny, you'll feel better about it. <laughs> um, we're, we're going to have to finish up in a moment. Um, Camille, you're going to bring us to a theatrical close. Tell us a little... Um, yeah, I'm going to uh, sing a song with uh, Cottleson on piano and I love singing Nick Cape's songs and this yeah. is one I've done for a few years now and just usually sometimes end the show with this just as a kind of a affectionate hug to the audience. But knowing their boundary, the knowing the boundary. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm up on stage, it's just, you know, so it's called Ship Song. When I crawl into your arms 
That, of course, was Camille O'Sullivan. And thank, of course, to all of my guests here today. Um, Tony Bates, Javon Parkinson, uh, Jack O'Rourke, Jessamine Fairfield, and, of course, Camille. And, of course, thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can catch all episodes of Pantasocracy on rte.ie or on pantasocracy.ie. And our next show goes out on Bank Holiday, Monday, October 31st at 2 p.m. So um, we're moving into a whole daytime experience, which means I'll be getting into makeup at like 5 a.m. <laughs> um, anyway, I've been Panty Bliss. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Yay!